Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon or morning, depending on what time zone you're in. This is Michael Vanderwort and Robin Schooling. Hey, Robin. Hey, Mike. Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday. Another another second day of the week is here. Only only three more days till the weekend. Um, you're you're you are you done? Uh, are you still in mourning over the over the game yesterday? Uh. Uh, two days ago, I'm on day three, really, of morning now. It's, yeah. um, it's it's horrible. My um, although uh, you know, a couple of things have happened. There actually, this morning, there was an a, there's an attorney in New Orleans who has filed a suit to um, make the NFL replay the game, which or replay parts of the game, which goes in conjunction with, I think it's Article 7 or something in the NFL laws. Um, so people are, um, you know, still pretty worked up. Um, uh, a Saints fan bought eight billboards in Atlanta. And they went up yesterday, plastered them all over town near the uh, mm-hmm. Super Bowl venue. Um, so, uh, yeah, you know, we're we're having our say. But uh, you know what? We've got Mardi Gras uh, season going on, so it's not like we don't have other things to do. So, well, yeah, but I'm sad. Condolences, even though most people in Atlanta don't mind the the Saints not being in our Falcons locker rooms, the training facility. Uh, hey, our guest who's sitting quietly at waiting for us to introduce him is Jamie Nodder. Jamie, welcome to Drive Through HR. Uh, how are you doing today? I am in good shape. A little chilly here in DC, but uh, surviving. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's chilly in Atlanta as well. It's like in low 40s, which and it was 20 or night, so we're back on weather. Um, Jamie, for those folks who are listening or will listen in the future since all stuff comes off of downloads, tell, tell us about Jamie Nodder and what you do and that kind of stuff to open the show. Sure. So uh, I have a consulting company with my partner, Maddie Grant, called Human Workplaces, and uh, we focus on workplace culture. And I like to tell people we have a nice sort of speaking and consulting business whose whole goal is to float us in writing our books. Like I'm addicted to <laughs> writing books and I do this other stuff just so I have resources to write the books. But yeah, we've written three books together and, and have already, we're already, don't tell anyone, we're already mapping out our next one. So. Oh, that's an addiction or something. Huh? It is. It is. I can't, we can't stop, but we love it. So, so the, the, the books, um, that we, I know we posted into the show is the non-obvious guide to employee engagement. <laughs> so um, I'm not, I, I love the title. I'm not sure all our talk and all the probably billions of dollars that people spend that we still as HR professionals or, or managers get what engagement really is. Can you translate it for us? Yeah, so and by the way, the non-obvious piece is from our publisher, which we think is which is brilliant. He's actually doing a whole a whole series of guidebooks uh about okay. you know the non-obvious guide to marketing and non-obvious guide to event yeah. planning. Um and he he tapped us to uh to do employee engagement. But yeah, our uh, when we started writing about employee engagement, the uh, you know, I sort of 
did the research on what everyone, how everyone's defining it, and people tend to define it as some sort of level of emotional commitment or connection to an organization, which I think makes intuitive sense. Um, but it also frustrates me because you, you can't really change that. Like, I can't do something to make you like me more. You know what I mean? Right. Um, yeah. And so we felt like the missing ingredient that, that, that really defines engagement is success. Like that level of commitment and connection, you get it when you work in a place where you can be deeply successful, where you can be successful for you personally, where you can be successful in your role and where your role sort of contributes to the success of the enterprise. Where we don't, where we don't, where we don't get engaged is when we start messing with us. We start making it harder for you to win. We may start making it harder for you, you to do your job. That's what sort of gets in the way. Um, and if we, if we kind of focused on the success piece rather than on the emotional connection piece, we'd get the emotional connection piece. Um, so that's, that's one of the sort of non-obvious angles that we're taking. Okay. Yeah, I think about that, you know, bureaucracy and obstacles mm-hmm. that yeah, – obstacles of any kind that are sort of placed in front of people or that are – so embedded in an organization that keep people from being successful. Yep. Uh, so I can see that. And, you know, I, I know one of the things that, that you, the two of you talk about is that connection between engagement and culture and that relationship between the two. So how does, how does culture, you know, inter, intertwine with engagement? How, how are they codependent? What, how do they work together? Well, yeah, we 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 see them as sort of joined at the hip um, because from our experience in organizations, like culture is the biggest lever you have to impact success throughout the whole system. Because um, there's there's a certain amount of setting up an organization that people do it that are you know the sort of more tech, technical end of it of who does what and this kind of thing um, that and strategy that, that will obviously impact success. That's fine. We're all actually pretty good at that. Um, but what, what most organizations I think miss is that underneath the surface of what you do in your organization, there's all these cultural patterns and the cultural patterns are the kinds of things that they get in the way of success and we don't see it. Right. So that's yeah. why the, the two are so important because the, the that that sub layer of cultural patterns that that actually make it really hard to get things done, or hard to hard to get things done the way they should be done in your particular organization, like that stuff. If you ignore that, then you'll try and solve all the problems on the surface, uh, and it just won't have as big of an impact. So yeah. the big impact uh, on success these days, I think, is uh, sort of finding and fixing those those cultural patterns. So how, how do you, well, I mean, I intuitively gut check all that kind of stuff. People tend to know, think they know, but how do you identify, not you as a consultant, Jamie, but just anybody, you know, in, in, in the world of work, how do you identify a company that offers the type of work uh, situation that you just described with good culture and, and in, in, an engagement and, a, and an ad, uh, desire to make work easier for people so they can succeed. I mean, does that happen a lot or is it a, is it a rare formula? Um, I, I, well, it's probably somewhere in between a lot and rare. I, I mean, I, but probably more towards rare. 
Um, like when Maddie and I, it's been four years now, but Maddie and I wrote the book When Millennials Take Over, we did a case study approach. And one of our case studies was um, a company called QLI, and they're in Omaha, Nebraska. And they, they're an amazing company. Like they won the best place to work award so many times they got kicked out of the program. <laughs> like, like, and, and in a nice way, like they created a special category for them because they were always going to win, you know, and other people wanted to win. So they're an amazing organization, but they've done a really, they spent a lot of time figuring out the difference between really extraordinary performance in their context and just okay, or even just very good performance. So they're a healthcare company. They do rehabilitation for people with brain injuries and spinal cord injuries. It's like really hard work. Wow. But one of their key things they figured out, you know what? The, the, the therapies that we do will only stick if you can connect it to something deep inside the patient, something deep inside that patient personally. Like it's got to have that personal connection. That key piece, like understanding the success driver, like they've changed um, like their whole – hierarchy they didn't well, that's not true they have a hierarchy it's very traditional they have vps they have directors blah 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 but they also have a rule in the organization that says hey whoever knows the most about the hopes and dreams of the, of the patient that person gets to speak like that person goes first hmm. um and it changes the behavior inside the organization to the point and i remember when we were doing research there this story like a million times there was a meeting that some new interns were going to and the ceo is in the meeting and they didn't even realize it hmm. <laughs> Right, because the CEO didn't know as much about the patient, and so she just stayed quiet. Um, and it's, it's, it, but it, it's, it requires that like really deep understanding of what success means. Uh, and the reason it's rare is I think a lot of organizations don't go down to that level. Right? They would think, oh, we just need to hire the best speech therapist, the best physical therapist, whatever, and and do good healthcare work that should make us succeed. And I think there's there's typically a layer below that. But once they get there, I think end up uh, creating these cultures that, that, that people like me write about. Interesting. Go ahead, Robin. Yeah. I, you know, and, and it's so, um, I think having that conversation then becomes so personalized to each employee. Mm-hmm. Um, what does success look like to you, Jamie, or to you, Mike, or to me, Robin, yep. on a really granular level, which um you know let's face it that 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 becomes part and parcel of managerial you know courage to have those conversations and to really listen to people and to help each individual kind of develop a success a, a very personalized success profile because what's going to keep me engaged and and how I'm striving for success that goes beyond the organizational success yeah. it's going to yeah. be so personalized um, and if my manager does not make it okay for me to say that and chart my own course and maybe define success different than yep. my coworker who has the same job sitting next to me, uh, then I'm I'm missing something. You know, yeah. I'm not I'm not gonna have that. Yeah, the the personal level is is another one that I don't think gets enough attention. Is actually uh, when we were sort of crafting this book, one of the epiphanies I had is is that there is a population in the workforce that had, does not have an employee engagement problem. Um, and I can sort of address this personally myself. It's entrepreneurs, hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. if you start and run your own business, you do not have an engagement problem, <laughs> right? 
right? Yeah. Like these are, these are the people, this is your poster child for engagement. They're given extra effort. They're totally committed. They're totally connected. And one of the reasons is because most people who are entrepreneurs were kind of born to be entrepreneurs. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it is so important, not just to the work they're doing or the company they're building, but to who they are. And that's, that's why you never having, well, actually, I think the only time you have an engagement problem with entrepreneurs is once they realize that the company they're doing is not going to work. Hmm. Like once they realize this is not going to cut it, like we, you know, it was a good try, but not quite. That's when mm-hmm. they start phoning it in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think this is huge, particularly for HR. I mean, HR loves to standardize stuff, right? Like, yeah. hey, let's get our standardized job descriptions. I'm like, no, let's customize everyone's job description every year. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that's not an answer like HR wants to hear, particularly if they're in a large organization, but like I, maybe it doesn't have to be every year with everybody, but it's got to be more customized than it is now if yeah. you want to tap into that power. And yeah. it's just, I don't know. I think we're sitting on untapped power in that sense because we're not, we're not, we're sort of afraid to go down that path. Well, and there's, oh. there's just this real aversion. Um, oh, I can hear it. And I've heard it from HR peers and I've, probably quite frankly uttered it myself I can admit over the years of um yeah we can't take it down to the level to that level um speaking about job descriptions or mm-hmm. performance uh, appraisals or feedback mechanisms whatever mm-hmm. um because there's this there's this uh, kind of overarching concern and thought and, and and HR folks like to go back to the cliche the cliched statement of, well, we need to be fair and equitable to everybody. And if we mm-hmm. start customizing things too much, you know, and, and then we can't compare apples to, or, you know, apples yeah. to apples even. And, and then you have old school leaders, managers um, who still like to do, you know, forced rankings and mm-hmm. uh, that sort of thing. And, and HR people, it's easy sometimes when you work in HR to, Go down that path and go. Let, let's just let's just have this numerical scale, and we're going to put everybody on the same kind of matrix, and it makes it easier because then we've got data to justify when mm-hmm. we do or don't take an action with an employee, and it's it's crutch. Yeah, yeah, no, and it's it's old school. <laughs> yeah, that's like uh, you know, it's like right, yeah, and I bet all the people who write software these days really hard to use but they give you a good manual right no <laughs> they don't they make it so you can customize it and they make it work the first time and it's harder work on their part but welcome to the digital age i feel like yeah. in, in hr we gotta, we gotta sort of buck up and, and do the same thing yes yeah. you know i worked uh most recently jamie at a company that had, you know close to two hundred thousand employees 1,100 or 1,200 retail stores, truck drivers delivering to those stores, uh, warehouses behind that, manufacturing facilities producing food products. You know, so there are a lot of different kinds of work in the in, within the the broad scope of that organization. Uh, public markets. They have been on the great place to work list every year since it was created. Um, and I know from having worked there that they don't do everything right, but they do have engaged employees. And, and part of that is, you know, it, it's, it's a high, it's a high performance culture. I'm not saying they fire people at the drop of a hat, but they generally don't let people stay in the culture if they're not buying into it. Right. Those folks get worked mm-hmm. out in a reasonable way. Um, 
And I bring all that up, I guess, for two, two quick questions. One is, do the, do the Great Place to Work programs help in, in engagement, or is it just a way to kind of measure yourself and hopefully get some good uh, PR for your company? Yeah, I'm... I've never done, I've never worked in an organization that sort of did the best place to work uh, survey. Um, I, I tend to view it as a marketing thing. Like it's, you can, it's, it's a, it's a, because it's a set survey. Like they, they're mm-hmm. like, Hey, we're going to ask these questions. And if you score high enough, if, if you get good scores, then, then you win, you know, you win the award, you get on the list of the best place to work. And that is fine. It's just, <laughs> It's like it's like when we do a culture assessment. Everyone's talking about innovation these days. They're like, oh, we, well, it, you know, we got to be innovative. If you're not if you're not innovative, you're you're behind. And innovation is really important. And like rah rah. And I think that's really true in a lot of places. But I always tell people, not if you're a nuclear power plant. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I don't want you hacking things. If you're a new, like I don't want you experimenting. I want you doing it exactly like you did it yesterday. You know? So the it it's a real the best place to work in terms of like people who love working there, that kind of thing. Like you can measure that. I just feel like a lot of the, the questions that are asked in those, in those contexts have an ideal culture in mind. And I get the desire to have a single ideal culture. I just don't think it works that way. Um, There's some really like, you know, Netflix was, is sort of famous for its, its, we, we reward, you know, mm-hmm. average performance with a, with a generous severance package. Like that's really cut through, not cut throat, but it's like very intense. There are plenty of organizations that would not succeed doing that in their case. It looks like they did, you know what I mean? Like that was, that was what was needed to, to, to grow in the, in the, in the downloading, you know, video download, uh, uh, streaming industry when it was, when it was new, like they just, they needed that. Um, and so some people would be miserable in that environment. So it wouldn't be best place for them. Um, so I get it. It's nice. It's an, it's an accolade. It looks good. Um, and, and it, I imagine it helps with recruiting and stuff, but I, I, I still think that takes a second or, or a backseat to being when you're recruiting to say, hey, look, folks, this is what our culture actually is. Mm-hmm. Here's, how it, here's what it's like I'm to work gonna, here, you know, and then give them the honest answer and then they'll either decide they like it or not. And I'm, I'm going to editorialize here because uh, not that long ago, I, I actually did write a blog post about how um, uh, I, I think best, Best place to work, great place to work, super duper place to work in city ABC mm-hmm. is um, a shill for money, <laughs> and um, uh, you know your executives can go to a, a nice uh, luncheon, and um, everybody gets the same logo that they can put on their career site, mm-hmm. and it means absolutely nothing. Yeah. Nothing. Okay. I, I agree. I was just trying to be nice to start. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'm, I'm pulling no punches. I think it's crap. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'd rather have play. the worst places to work because pick a town and uh, pick a city and you could look around and say, you know, everybody knows the worst places to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's be honest and give those folks awards. They should, you know, but it, I think it becomes becoming becoming clear and intentional about um, your culture is what it is, so right. um, there's nothing wrong with saying that. There's 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 a culture for everybody, and I've worked at places that are where I, I was not successful 
and they were not a fit for me. And I didn't know mm-hmm. until I was in there living it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that were very, um, oh, you know, quiet, rigid, slow-moving, whatever, whatever it may be. Uh, I think of the, some of the attributes of places I've worked where I didn't know it until I was in it. Mm-hmm. They weren't a fit for me, but there were people that loved it. Yeah. And there were people who thrived in that. And if if the if the organization would just be upfront about that, this is this is what we like. It's quiet. It's everybody wears a gray suit. We sit in cubes. Mm-hmm. You know, we have meetings. You know, to, uh, about meetings, whatever it may be, just be <laughs> upfront about that. Somebody loves that. There are talented people that love that and get those folks in there. Right. Right. Well, and I bet the and the other thing is like. You also have to have the conversation is like, hey, being slow and having meetings about meetings, is that really going to lead to us thriving? So right. it's like maybe we're actually hiring a bunch of people who like a sinking ship. Right, true. <laughs> you know, and you, you got to watch that one too. Like, like, let's actually make sure this is, this is working for us. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I it's, well, this, one reason, sorry, this is one reason why I hate engagement surveys to begin with. It's the same as the best places to work or the same sort of danger. It's all about predefining what's good, you know? Yeah. Like you get, you get favorable scores or unfavorable scores, you know? Uh, and then you look at all your red scores and go, oh, we need to fix this. And again, it's like sometimes it's like, I mean, I had a, we had an organization that we worked with. They were like re- so inclusive; it was ridiculous. And they were, and it was a huge piece of their identity. It was very important to them, and that was great. Their challenge was they invited everybody to every meeting because they couldn't <laughs> rule anybody out, which meant they started getting real slow. I mean, yeah, yeah. You, can have every, you can have everybody at every meeting, but their stakeholders are like, "Hey, you used to keep us ahead of the curve, and you're not doing it anymore." So they had to shift their culture to say, you know what, we can't be, we can still be inclusive. We're not going to give up that that's core to who we are, but not everyone decides, <laughs> you know, yeah. like we have to yeah. have some rules about that. And, and so that's like, that's the kind of fine tuning I think between culture and success that people start, that's when people start saying, Oh, I do not want to work anywhere else. This is it. Like we got mm-hmm. it here. It's cool. Um, and that's, so that's how you get the best place to work is when people say, wow, I can't imagine working anywhere else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's not mm-hmm. a lot of people that will say that. I, I need to do a quick reset for two reasons. One is we have seven and a half minutes left and the other is drive through HR with Mike and Robin and our guest today is Jamie Notter. The announcement or posting said it would be Jamie Notter and Maddie. Maddie is unavailable, and so we just want to wish her well wherever she may be, and uh, don't don't be surprised if you don't hear her in the podcast. I think we kind of wandered down into the question of why engagement surveys are flawed and how to dig into your culture to go beyond the symptom metrics was, was the third question we had. I think you were just there a second ago. You want to continue with that, or is there more, more, to, more to think about? Well, I mean, I think the symptom and cause piece is, not, is something that's not – uh, clear enough in our conversations around engagement because all of the good and bad stuff that we ask, questions that we ask around engagement, um, when we see that, it's kind of like taking your temperature and going, wow, it's 101.6. Like that's that's a problem. Mm-hmm. And then we're like, well, okay, let's just measure the temperature at your knee then, because we got it sort of under the arm. But let's just let's let's find 79 more ways to measure that you've got 101.6. <laughs> and 
And then if it's a little bit cooler on your knee, it's nearly 101.4 at the knee, then what we're going to do is the upper half of your body, we're going to put in an ice bath mm-hmm. because we want the temperature to go down. And we spend all this time trying to fix things to make the temperature go down. And it's like, folks, if it's a virus, you're going to do one thing. If it's, if it's bacterial, you're going to do something totally different. You don't even know what's causing this. Um, mm-hmm. And none of the engagement surveys get at causes. They, they tell you, oh, you're not agile. You're supposed to be agile, and you're not. You got red scores there. So now you have a whole team that comes up with a slide deck that tells you how to tell the organization, <laughs> be agile, you know? And it's like, first of all, no one's going to listen to that because they don't know why they're being agile. <laughs> um, and if you dug beneath the surface and figured out sort of what's causing people to be unhappy, which again is the success misalignment, um, yeah. then you're like, you know what? Here's the deal. It's kind of like the example I gave, like, hey, we're too slow because we invite everyone every meeting and we're not meeting the needs of the people who are paying us. So let's change because that will, that will, that will create better customers, happier customers. People, everyone's going to be on board with that because you got down to the cause. Um, and I, and so uh, this is one reason why we've been doing engagement surveys for 20 years and have moved the needle like three percentage points. Um, Cause we're not, we're just not solving the problem. We're just really, really, really defining it well. <laughs> yeah. At the surface. So. Yeah. Now I want to I want to throw this question in, and we we really just have several minutes to get at this, but it's part of the title of your of your new book. Mm-hmm. Um, so the non-obvious guide to employee engagement, parentheses for millennials, boomers, and everyone else. Um, what have you found, and and why do we persist? Is there validity that you have that you have found? Um, but why do we persist with the generational stereotypes, the differentiating between generations? And 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 just like that uh, survey that came out here, that quote from uh, CBS or whoever it was yesterday, Gen X, of course, is missing off of that list, just like <laughs> they always are. Uh, yeah, we're used to that. Whatever. We'll still <laughs> save the world. We just don't need a parade. Um, That's right. No. The, uh, so, so a couple things. One, and of course, we wrote a book called before this one called When Millennials Take Over. But actually, I joke about that all the time because the millennials don't get to take over. Like, folks, business book titles are about marketing. Okay. Yep. We we wrote When Millennials Take Over because we wanted to scare old people into buying the book. You know, <laughs> um, which totally worked. And in this one, the and you'll see when you read the book, like it's not about. We have an appendix about generations in that book because we think it's important to know. And with a really important piece is that lessons from the millennials are shining a light on where the future of work is headed, in our opinion. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when you really want to understand your culture, don't tell me where, whether it's good or bad. Tell me where you are on that continuum. Are you more traditional or are you more like cutting edge future of workplaces? And you can be anywhere you want to be, but like that's how I can peg where you are. That's how I can understand what it's going to be like to work there is to know how is it are you sort of more futurist or more traditional? So yeah. we think it's useful to, to know that stuff to guide those conversations, but we don't particularly see like, okay, well, here's your, here's your baby boomer engagement plan and uh-huh. here's your Gen X engagement plan. Like it's about success and we think it's a useful uh, sort of body of knowledge to be aware of when you're understanding that. Um, but it's not it's not uh, sort of going to guide you, in a, I don't know, 
sort of rote kind of way. And right. and to the, to the broad question, I mean, is there is there actual validity with generational differences? I think there is. Um, I get pushed back all the time, like, oh, there's no such thing. We're all just individuals. I'm like, really? Then men and women aren't different? I'm sorry, there's billions of men and billions of women on this planet, but they're all this, we're all just individuals, right? There's no sense in actually distinguishing gender issues. I'm like, ah, I think there's some pretty smart academics that would point to some differences <laughs> in society among men and women. And that doesn't mean that each individual man is the same or woman, right? right. Like, so the same thing applies with generations. It's, it's about millions of people the high level thing. Um, and it should be, it's, I find it useful in guiding conversations, but it never tells you how your people, the people in your organization do things or think, you know what I mean? So that's where yep. it gets, that's the trap that people fall into. It's like, Oh, you're a boomer. So you think this, I'm like, that's not how that works. Um, so it's more of a background guide than, a, than a, recipe prescriptive plan yeah (laughs) so we're we're down to just over a minute um so where you can uh, where they can find you jamie and and we'll end the show and i want to want to say thanks for you being our guest today yes thank you yeah, no, I was excited to be here i really appreciate it um our company website is humanworkplaces.net uh and my speaker site and blog is jamienotter.com and there's a good page on the book there as well. So that's where you can find us. Awesome. All right. Well, we're, we're back next week, and I don't remember who our guest is. We'll see next week next we week. have um, Talia Edmondson, the HR leader oh. from Revzilla. So it's our theme week with um, Do the Work, where we, we have an actual, you know, in, in the trenches HR practitioner in to talk about what she's experiencing and, and they're doing, they've been doing for the last couple of years, some really cool things at Revzilla. So it should Great. be a good conversation. Thanks everyone. See you later. Thanks. Thanks. Bye everybody. <laughs>